Hello and welcome to a special end of year bumper edition of the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and today I'm joined by four brilliant guests. As ever, I'm with Spike's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And as a special treat, we also have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And columnist Andrew Doyle. Hello. Today we'll be discussing three key themes, democracy, freedom and identity. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So 2018 has been yet another year of political upheaval and change. The old order is crumbling, people across Europe are revolting, and in Britain, Brexit is all still up in the air. Brendan, you've described this moment we find ourselves in as a European spring. Would you like to tell us what you mean by that? I think uh, what's happening in Europe right now is incredibly exciting. I think it's uh, it's not an exaggeration to say it is a European spring. I think uh, everyone always says that the current period is like the 1930s, the return of fascists, the return of Nazis. I actually think it's more like 1848 when you had the another European spring, the the the, the uh, people's revolts across Europe, which are actually were actually very similar to what we have now. They were nationalist revolts. They were people calling for more national self-determination. They were revolts against largely monarchical structures, against kind of distant political elites who didn't represent people. Uh, there was a strong republican sentiment. They had their origins in France, and then they spread through Europe. And I think we're seeing some of that this year with the Gilets jaunes protests. Uh, and then they have spread to Belgium and Italy and other parts of Europe and, and the Netherlands. So... Uh, it's. I think it's really exciting. I think because we're in the thick of it, we can't really see how historic it is. Uh, and we can lose sight of how revolutionary it is that you have this kind of sustained revolt in Paris. You have people trying to storm the European Commission in Brussels. You have mass um, protests in favor of a Eurosceptic uh, prime minister in Italy. And of course, you have Brexit, the ongoing um, ballot box revolt, which has sent shockwaves across the entire continent and, in fact, a lot of the world. Um, and when you're in that moment, it can be quite hard to step back and say, actually, this will be recorded in the future as a very important year. So I think 2018 has been really incredibly important in terms of a, a, the rise of a new counterculture, the rise of a new pushback against the old politics and the unraveling of politics as we knew it. It's unpredictable. It's a bit scary. Uh, we don't know where it's going to go. But I think in the round, it is really positive, humanistic development in politics. Tom, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting developments and something that we've obviously covered on Spike quite extensively, you in particular, Fraser, is the Gilets jaunes protest. And I think what's really interesting about that is that over the past few years, and Brexit was probably the exception to this, was the fact that the revolts against the establishment, against the European Union, against the technocratic set, had to kind of necessarily take a right-wing form. You know, it was the only option there. The left, broadly speaking, has abandoned um, Euroscepticism and has proved itself incapable elsewhere of actually meeting the demands of this new kind of uh, democratic upsurge. But one of the most exciting things about that protest, I think, is the fact that it has very naturally and organically 
move beyond those kinds of left-right distinctions. The left can't own it. Various trade union movements have tried to move in and try to take some kind of ownership over that, and that's been completely resisted. And similarly, of course, from the offset, the accusation at the Gilets jaunes from the establishment and from certain sections of the European left were this was neo-fascistic, it was right-wing, these are Le Pen people. And yet again, they haven't been able to take ownership over it at all. And even if you just think about the fact that, you know, the, the thing about these protests is not necessarily their size, it's the level of support that they get. The polls showing, you know, 70% support across the country. And if you compare that to, say, what Marine Le Pen got in the first round of the presidential election, you know, 21%. This is something very new. Um, and I think that moment in particular, I think it's demonstrated what we've said for a very long time, which is this new populist backlash might by necessity take a right-wing form in certain places and also just might take a right-wing form given the politics of certain countries etc and the issues at stake but this is an issue that transcends left and right it's about who governs is it the elites in the metropolitan centers or is it the people who are as in france on the peripheries and and treated as such so the last couple of months in particular i think have, have really shown that we are you know, on the cusp of a kind of new age. And that's really interesting. And I think I think the backlash to the Gilets jaunes has been really interesting and really significant. I mean, it has taken pretty much exactly the same form as the backlash to Brexit, as the backlash to, say, the Trump revolt in, in the US. You know, this immediate dismissal of um, it being caused by the far right, it being caused by Facebook, and now most recently, it being caused by Russia. And, you know, I can tell you that I spoke to scores and scores of gilets jaunes in paris a few weeks ago and not one of them was an agent of the russian state well they wouldn't tell you would they (laughs) i mean i suppose that they may perhaps they were all paid to be there or something like that but i mean it's pretty shocking that you know people were coming to paris in their tens of thousands um a significant number of people considering how how difficult the um security forces had made it to get there you know I had to walk about a mile from the nearest station to reach the march. I was searched by riot police officers six times. So you have to be pretty determined to make it there. I saw people there from all over the country, people coming as far as, you know, the Spanish border, um, just to just to be there and, and, and you know, to make their voice heard. And And the things they were talking about were genuine concerns. They have been cut out of the democratic process. Their pay is too low. And their costs of living are too high. And it's completely shocking that, you know, across Europe, we have an elite that is so aloof that immediately those things are dismissed as, you know, basically troublemaking by Russians, as if those concerns are somehow not real. There's something really great about the French tradition is that they don't take things lying down. You know, they take to the streets and they actually have this revolutionary uh, quality about them. I suppose my fear about all that is that we don't have that here. And I I think if as I imagine Brexit is thwarted by uh, our parliament, I think the response might just be a kind of resignation to, well, we tried, you know, we tried to to make our voice heard and it wasn't, it wasn't allowed. And I worry that that would be our response. There's that cultural difference, which is concerning. And the other thing that really does concern me is that all of these populist movements across, across Europe, whether they be nationalist or otherwise, uh, seem to be um, explained away as neo-fascistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me is... Um, I mean, it's not only wrong, I mean, it's a huge misinterpretation, but I think it's, it could potentially be disingenuous as a means by which to shut down those those uh, opposing voices. Because, of course, if you say someone is a fascist or a Nazi, then, then they're, they're not really part of acceptable political debate. So that I worry about why that is happening, and why people are so determined to see fascists absolutely everywhere. Mm. I feel like it also points to a massive failure on the left, uh, not just in terms of abandoning the working classes for so long, 
uh, ever since the sort of third way, the Blairs and the, and, and the Clintons, just leaving those people behind and generating all of this resentment. Uh, but also this mistrust of, of regular people. I mean, it, I think it really does come down to, to whether you trust human beings and humanity and the population. And we know that people don't. We know that because after the Brexit vote, everybody was determined to say that we're all stupid, racist, low information, all the wor- very worst things that you can imagine. Or we voted because of something written on a bus. Um, I've yet to meet someone who voted on on the basis of something a bus told them to. But you know, th- so that those are the things that worry me most about these uh, these movements in Europe. Ella, uh, what is interesting? I think I feel probably slightly more optimistic in terms of I'm quite jealous of what's happening in France in the way that you kind of wish that people would pour out into the streets uh, more readily here. But uh, I think the necessity for really quite radical change in European countries is going to produce some interesting results because. You know, at the same time as no party or no position politically seems to be able to capture what's happening in Paris, uh, in other places in Europe, kind of anti-EU populist revolts have also been similarly met with a kind of a lacking response. I'm thinking about the Italian elections uh, in the spring of this year, which had this you know, quite positive result in relation to an anti-EU uh, coalition, eventually having a largely anti-EU coalition having in power there. I remember reading a piece in the Spike Review in the Populism Review that we had earlier this year, uh, which was called Italy, the rise of the techno-populist. So that party and that those politicians are seemingly incapable of capturing the spirit of what is behind the kind of populist revolt in Europe, which is a desire for the total destruction, positive destruction of politics as the way it is. And I, I think we're going to keep seeing these kind of um, spurts and bursts of uprising. I hope we keep seeing them, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing that as of yet no one's managed to capture it because as we've been arguing for years, uh, you know, it needs something radically new. Something needs to happen that we've never seen before. I agree with Andrew. I think for me, the greatest disappointment in all of this is the role of the left because I think the great mistake that the left has made since the Brexit vote in particular, because I do think the Brexit vote was the trigger for all of this. I mean, I love the French. I love how revolting they are. I love the fact they're on the streets <laughs> demanding the creation of a sixth republic, which is, uh, which I think is not beyond the realms of possibility. That's all great, but it's like the French Revolution actually came after the English Revolution. We have to remember that. And it's important to remember that the Gilets jaunes come after Brexit, which I think is, I'm not saying Britain is super wonderful, the best nation in the world, but it is important to recognise that Brexit kind of opened the floodgates. And I think since Brexit, the great mistake made by the left is that they have bought into the political classes. Um, terrified response to these events and the political class's terrified response whether it's Hillary Clinton talking about Russia co-opting the American public and turning them all into fascists or um, the a third way style establishment in the UK saying that Brexit reminds them of 1930s Germany or Angela Merkel and all the rest of them saying if you don't agree to have 100,000 immigrants in your countries then you're basically neo-fascists. That's been their way, that's been the establishment's way of understanding this revolt. They can only understand it in, in the sense that the people have gone mad, they've been warped, they've been brainwashed and they've all gone crazy. The left's great mistake was to buy into that. I, I've watched it happen and I could yeah. not believe what I was seeing. I could not believe that even ostensibly semi-radical leftists were agreeing with people like Prince Charles and the Archbishop of bloody Canterbury yeah. <laughs> and Hillary Clinton that fascist, the 1930s fascism is coming back. So they've kind of completely sold out. 
And I think that could possibly be, I think the left's failure to recognise the radical potential in the Brexit vote in particular could well be the last nail in the left's coffin. I mean, there are many nails in that coffin, as we know. It could be the last one because I can't see how they recover from this um, profound misjudgment they've made about the climate we currently find ourselves in and the fact that as a consequence of their profound misjudgment there are vast swathes of people in Europe revolting and demanding a better form of politics and a greater form of democracy Mm. who now will not look to the left because they know the left thinks that they are fascist. And and also just in terms of the the track record of you know whenever you talk about populism there's always some people who want to bring up Syriza or (laughs) Podemos or something but they've have shown themselves to be complete paper tigers throughout this process. Podemos because they never managed to break through. Syriza because they did and then completely sold out you know and what's really interesting at the moment I think just to come back to the point about Britain is the fact that we need to remember that the fact that um, Britain voted to leave the European Union was not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. We're nowhere near the most Eurosceptic country in Europe. You know, Italy is one of the only countries in Europe where actually Euroscepticism is higher amongst young people. There's huge Mm. numbers of Eurosceptic people in France. I mean, I think the fact that the British, despite the fact that we did have this this spirit slightly more of resignation, um, that we didn't do populism, the fact that we decided to effectively strike a decisive blow to the entire European-wide order is at the very least um, a cause for some optimism, it feels like. It does strike me as interesting, though, the response. I mean, I don't want to draw the comparison too heavily, but with the Arab Spring, insofar as when that... <laughs> just, no, it's not the same. But when that happened, the attitude towards it was different. Yeah. The consensus seemed to be they're using social media to, in order to orchestrate themselves, to mm. organise. Uh, there was no sense in which people are being manipulated by social yeah. media into thinking something yeah. they don't actually believe. And I think this is a fundamental mistake that the left has made, is to assume that they didn't really mean what they said or taking people in bad faith and not thinking that it was a sincere vote to, to affect change. And I worry that, they, that, that that is a shift that we've seen in terms of attitudes. And I don't know where that's come from. And this, this disconnect, I, and I mean, I think it's fundamentally a disconnect between the left and the people. And this is just borne out in, in the polling. If you look at the latest polling in, you know, in terms of the upcoming European elections, um, the kind of centre-left groupings are on course to get less than 20% across the whole of Europe. So, you know, Germany's SPD is polling... Um, around 14% in the, in the elections last year, in the German elections. They had their worst result in post-war history. Um, you know, the Netherlands Labour Party polling 11%. France, the Socialist Party, who were in government only a few years ago, 6%. And, you know, even in Sweden, Social Democratic Sweden, you know, the Social Democrats are the most successful left-wing party in Europe. And Yet they had their worst result this year since 1911. And it's, you know, I suppose their reaction is to just say, well, they're all fascists, you know. (laughs) I'm afraid it's not good enough. (laughs) The events in Sweden are particularly striking because that has traditionally been the most consensual country in Europe. A lot of European officials were saying, you know, if, if Sweden goes the way of populism, then we really are screwed. So that was a good barometer of where things are going. I think um, in relation to the left and so on. I think France, again, is very indicative of where things are at because if you look at what's happening with the Gilets jaunes revolts, it's like 1968 all over again, except even bigger, and except, this is really important, it's a new countercultural movement, but it's countering the culture that was created out of 1968. And I think that's the really historic turnaround that is taking place. So the 1968 countercultural revolution in France and elsewhere was really against the old traditionalism and the old conservatism and the old stuffy way of doing politics. 
What you have now in France is a counterculture that, which is really calling into question the new orthodoxies, like the ideology of multiculturalism or the ideology of technocracy or the, or the centralization of politics away from ordinary people. That's why people are calling into question the nature of the Fifth Republic itself, because the whole point of the Fifth Republic, created in the 1950s under de Gaulle, was precisely to centralize politics and to take power away from all these pesky local councils who were seen as being too powerful and to centralize everything. So that's all now being called into question. It's really worth taking a step back from everything and just looking at it in, in the historical sweep. And the fact that we are living through a period, which is probably the first one in my lifetime, in which people are openly calling into question everything that exists in the political realm. Um, and I don't even care if some of that veers off to the right or if it veers off to the left. I'm completely relaxed about that. I think the fact that it's happening, the fact that we have ordinary people asking profound questions about the nature of their society is positive. One result of that is that they have heaped shame on all those radical leftists who for years and years have been bleating on about revolution and revolt and you know chanting Jeremy Corbyn's name at Glastonbury which apparently was a revolutionary moment and then these you know truck drivers in France put those people to absolute shame by actually having a real revolt which has had um, absolutely enormous political consequences and the Corbynistas and all the other phony radicals that exist in Europe are, feel so ashamed by this that the only response they can have is, well, maybe they're a bit far right, maybe they're a bit dodgy, maybe they're all under Marine Le Pen's spell. What's actually happened is that people in France and Brexit voters and people across Europe have exposed the shallow nature of that pseudo-radicalism and pointed the way towards a genuinely radical approach to overturning politics as it's existed so far. I'd like to just spend the last couple of minutes of this section just talking about Brexit specifically. You know, the interesting thing is that certainly it has not been a boring year. <laughs> uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's been a good year. I think this it's been characterised by sellout after sellout, compromise after compromise. And if you wanted to be negative about it uh, as a Brexiteer, you would think that, you know, this has spelled the doom of British politics, that uh, never in my political lifetime, which isn't very long, have I felt less powerful, less in control, uh, or more frustrated. It's like it's been really completely taken out of voters' hands. And uh, Brexit politics has just been happening pretty much like how it used to happen in Brussels behind closed doors. Those closed doors are uh, in Westminster this time. As we're going into the new year, we're looking at potentially a second referendum, a really crappy deal, a no deal. I mean, there's lots of different options flying around. But one thing is for sure is that it has never been more clear, to me anyway, of where the lines in the sand are drawn in relation to British politics. You have, you know, f for two years after Brexit, I remember that spiked, we were arguing, these people are against us, it's the elites against the people. And every time you said what you've said here, that people are, you know, stupid, they say, oh, no, 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 we're just, you know, we're just saying we're uneducated, we just trust experts. This year, it's been explicit, explicit uh, MPs in their uh, hundreds coming out and saying this needs to be explicitly overturned this was wrong uh, we do not trust the people that leaves us Brexiteers in quite a powerful position because you're able to point directly to the kind of elitism in British politics and it strengthens your arm in saying 
uh, we need something new. So <laughs> rather than sort of crying about it, I think this is actually the position we're in now. Uh, ironically, when Brexit is at its most threatened, is potentially the most powerful for a kind of arguing for something different. It was only the first few hours of 2018, on January the 1st, that the Twitter mobs came after Toby Young when he was appointed to the newly minted university's regulator, the Office for Students. And there were Twitter mobs aplenty that followed. Even the social media firms themselves started baring their teeth, banning wayward users. So, Andrew, overall, how would you say this year has been for free speech? Uh, I've got mixed feelings about it because on the on the one hand, I think it's getting worse. I think um, all of the kind of sensorial elements of uh, the identitarian left are doubling down on, on everything. But by the same token, I'm seeing more and more people getting sick of it and standing up and saying, no, we're not going to have this anymore. I think so much of this seems to be on social media. That seems to be the battleground for this now. Uh, I mean, it, every week there's something where some, someone trawls through an old Twitter account to try and find something to disgrace someone. I mean, it's really... Odd, odd behaviour. So it's based on this, this notion that there can be no redemption. And once you've said something slightly inappropriate, you are stigmatised forever. Well, if that's the case, we're all doomed. You know, I, I wouldn't want anyone looking over my old text messages to friends because there are going to be jokes on there that can be readily be misinterpreted. Um, but anyway, I think, um, I mean, we saw it with Kevin Hart. We saw it with um, uh, James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, who was removed from his job because of jokes, explicit jokes that he made many years ago. This is getting This is getting out of control. And... I think more and more people are getting sick of it, though. But when it comes to speaking out, it actually takes quite a lot of guts because you know that people will turn on you and say, why are you defending these people? The government's getting worse as well, I should say. I mean, they've recently launched a new website to explain and clarify what they mean by hate speech. There's a section on that website which explicitly talks about uh, non-crime hate incidents. Mm. So we now have a situation where the police are openly, and this is the first time I've seen it. I don't know if anyone else has, but this year I think is the first time I've seen the police actively trawling for people to report non-crimes, which is, I mean, that's terrifying, isn't it? And what, they did it, it in the wake of Brexit. Did well. they? Yeah. Well, what's it got to do with them, non-crimes? This is, this is ridiculous. It's like going to the doctor about a non-ailment. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And the best example of this, even though it wasn't this year, of course, was um, Amber Rudd's speech about immigration being reported as a non-crime. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've also had, why is Cressida Dick uh, checking with her hate crime unit to see whether Boris Johnson uh, has committed a crime by making a joke about burkas and letterboxes? Why is that even happening and why aren't more people um shocked and horrified by this because i think the trouble with all of this stuff is it does end up feeling like you're you're defending trivial things old jokes on twitter you know jokes Mm. about letterboxes whatever but actually the principle is massive like the principle is is to do with our ability to claim to be living in a free society where we can say and think whatever we like without state interference and then the other problem which i think probably we should talk about is the way in which left-wing uh, activists are now calling on uh, corporations to determine what we can say and what we can't say, which seems not only hypocritical, but uh, a, a, a hugely um, well, stupid thing to do. You know, these aren't the people mm. I want determining what, what, what the parameters of speech are. They should not set the Overton window, should they? I mean, we're talking about huge, giant tech companies in, in Silicon Valley. It's not good. It's not good. And they've all got the same kind of... Um, bias haven't they and they admit this they admit to talking to each other they admit to sharing ideas they colluded when it came well i think we can say they almost certainly colluded when it came to the banning of alex jones because of course it all happened simultaneously Mm. i think it doesn't take a genius to work that out so these are troubling times i think for free speech and unless more people are prepared to stand up 
for it and and risk being called alt-right or fascist and smeared and risk people trying to ruin their livelihoods, then it's going to keep going on and on. I want to go into detail into into many of the things you've mentioned, Andrew. Can we start with talking about sort of mob censorship? Because actually this was the year that the right suddenly discovered that they have a weapon. You know, they were handed this weapon by the left. So as you alluded to, you know, James Gunn, um, film director, prominent Trump critic, lost his job as a result of mob censorship from, you know, some right wing figures. Sarah Jong, um, New York Times on the New York Times editorial board, was similarly um, monstered by right wing figures. No, I think what was really interesting about the James Gunn case, which is so many people who I don't know what to call them. You could call them on the alt light. You could call them on the unpc rights. The kind of that section of Twitter who kind of emanated all the kind of dregs of the the Gamergate phenomenon and all the rest of it. That was spearheaded by the very people, people like Mike Cernovich, who's this kind of self-styled um, journalist online of that hue. Um, these are people who came up saying that we're all about freedom of speech, um, we're all against Twitter mobbing, and yet more than willing to use those weapons against who they saw as you know left-wing liberal targets. James Gunn was a pretty um, enthusiastic Trump hater, but he'd also made these kind of slightly strange uh, jokes about child abuse a few years ago, obviously trying to be funny. In, in a way, part of the thing that's so fascinating is the fact that so many people on the right have so willingly gone in for this. But in a way, that wasn't the surprising bit, because, of course, um, it was quite clear that a lot of people on the right, their attachment to freedom of speech as an issue was, broadly speaking, because it had become a weapon in the culture war. Mm. It was a way of looking principled against all of these you know, left-wing loons who were running universities and social media companies. What I think was quite striking was the fact that the left and liberals were unable to recognise their own kind of cognitive dissonance as far as, in relation to James Gunn, they're like, why should you be dredging up tweets from years ago? He's obviously only joking. They would have never have said that in any other instance, whether it's Toby Young or anyone else. So I think it was just so striking that even though the point that people like us have always made, which is the fact that if you create this kind of weapon <laughs> mm -hmm. to shut down people you dislike, you won't always be in control of it. It's been proved 100% right. Um, the left-right, you know, censorship battles have just continued on since that point. There's been no actual real realisation this is where things would lead. Um, I think the outsourcing, I think Andrew's absolutely right, the outsourcing of censorship to corporations, where you have basically what used to be done by the state now being done by these utterly unaccountable Silicon Valley giants, is terrifying. The left who are calling for the expulsion from social media of right-wing or people or cranks or conspiracy theorists who they don't like, they have no idea what they're setting themselves up for, which is um, a system whereby the new public square, social media is basically the new public square, is now going to be policed and governed by these unaccountable corporate oligarchs. Uh, and all forms of speech will suffer as a consequence of that. So I think the outsourcing of censorship to private companies is one of the biggest problems of our time. Well, I, I wrote about that earlier this year with in relation to PayPal, who, mm. you know, at the same time that um, he, they had banned Tommy Robinson from using, you know, their their service, they'd also banned a load of Antifa groups. Again, on the grounds yeah. that, you know, yeah. these views are hateful. And yet, you know, those same groups were very were delighted to see their opponents banned, but, you know, horrified that that would ever come back to, to bite them. Even though, as we've said, oldest lesson in the world. Ella? Well, brilliant example that's come late in the year, just as we are talking now this week, the whole of the political classes in meltdown over Jeremy Corbyn supposedly <laughs> calling <That misogynist laughs> supposedly pig. calling <laughs> Theresa May not a horrendous 
misogynistic statement, but a stupid woman. Um, and Tories have their knickers in a real twist over this, so it just shows that the cens- censorship crosses the political divide. I think what's been interesting for me to see in relation to clarifying the situation of free speech this year has been uh, one big event, the fury over Steve Bannon speaking mm. at the Economist Festival, because that really brought into sharp focus how anti-freedom the press is uh, and that's certainly how anti-freedom the British media is because uh, The Economist uh, has this festival it invited Steve Bannon to speak via video link so he wasn't even in the country he was on going to be on Skype on a screen uh, and countless uh, public speakers commentators journalists decided they were going to boycott this and no platform him because they couldn't physically be seen in the same technological space as Steve <laughs> Bannon uh, and, you know, I remember t- talking on, uh, progr- you know, programs about this where people were saying, oh, we- we're going to talk about Steve Bannon. Obviously, we haven't invited him on because, you know, and you think, I mean, this is guys, a- like him or lump him, he's a serious figure in US politics. Uh, it certainly is interesting whether you agree with him or not. Uh, and yet journalists in the UK and America are completely unwilling to engage in it. We also saw this in relation to the dreadful treatment of Ian Baruma, the editor of the mm. New York Review of Books, uh, who decided to publish an article by Jean Gameshi, who was accused accused and not proven to be guilty uh, of sexual assault. He was ousted by his fellow journalists at the mm. New York Review of Books. It's a serious problem in relation to the press's attitude to freedom of speech, spiked as an honourable exception, has to be said. But you know that, for me, has been interesting to show how obvious it is that so many journalists don't get the concept of freedom of speech. And, and these are the same people who see themselves as truth-tellers and, mm. and all the rest of it. But, Brenda? Uh, I want to talk about Leon Trotsky, because I love talking about Trotsky. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the stuff we're talking about actually has happened many times in the past. Um, and one of the those examples is that the folly of left-wing people calling for hard-right people to be censored. And when Trotsky moved to Mexico uh, in the 1930s, um, he there was this radical left-wing group there who wanted the state to prevent the publication of hard-right newspapers or far-right newspapers and so on. And Trotsky wrote this fantastic essay in defense of freedom of the press in which he just made the point that if you are a radical who's calling for censorship, then you are an idiot and you have to remove yourselves from the ranks of the working classes because you are damaging public life and political life and and freedom. And he made the very simple point that, which is the point we're talking about here, which is that if you empower the state or in our current period, the state or corporations or the moral majority to... Um, expel ideas that they consider to be offensive then you are just creating a situation where they will do that to you so uh, Trotsky's made this point Thomas Paine has made this point numerous radicals in history have made this point that if you are a defender of freedom of speech it is incumbent upon you to defend every single form of speech whether you agree with it or not the fact that people keep forgetting that lesson I find quite chilling Um, and and today in particular it's really difficult to convince people of the necessity of defending speech that they don't like because the danger of course is if you defend fascistic speech people will call you a fascist if you defend the right of people to make racist jokes people will call you a racist if you defend the right of a man to make jokes about women people will call you a misogynist so it is difficult and dangerous but it's also essential because there's no way we can enjoy freedom of speech unless we defend it for absolutely everyone, including Steve Bannon. The trouble is, though, that, that people have bought into this idea that if people hear 
negative ideas, they will automatically be contaminated by these ideas and just, mm, yeah. well, actually it's in our interests to allow the far right to speak because they are self-discrediting because any kind yeah. of racist or far right xenophobia is based on an irrational uh, premise. So it cannot sustain itself in, in, in open debate. So we should be uh, uh, welcoming uh, their speech. And not only that, but don't give them the moral high ground to say, I've been censored because in the past, the far right has always thrived on martyrdom. That's mm. how it expands. And that's why I really fear that the far left and leftist identitarians in particular are emboldening and helping the far right all the while they think they're destroying it. What's interesting is that, you know, we constantly have to talk about the far right. So many of the targets of the censorship are not far right by yeah. any kind of, you know, historical, you know, definition. Steve Bannon is a weird kind of right wing economic nationalist populist. You know, if anything, I think a lot of the attempts to silence him really puffed him up in some sort of folk devil he wasn't. You know, I think there's a pretty strong case to say that he really hitched his wagon to the Trump phenomenon and has only benefited from it rather than being the sort of mastermind he likes to present himself. And then also the Alex Jones stuff I thought was interesting because up until only a few years ago, Alex Jones was considered a kind of lovable oddity. You know? yeah. um, no one believed what he said. I'm sure there were some people, you know, sat in their basements and um, believing every word of it. But, you know, celebrities used to go on his show because he was this kind of hilarious He's figure. Mad, yeah. He would talk about, you know, alien, uh, you know, dimension crossing pedophiles. You know, Water like, turning the frogs gay. Yeah. Water turning frogs gay. And yet at the same time, he's been suddenly turned into, you know, like um, Joseph Stryker or something. Like, it's this incredible... <laughs> Um, mix and what's interesting as well is the fact that um, and Andrew you know a lot more about this and as far as writing about it and also running Comedy Unleashed and all the rest of it but is that so much of this is just aimed at people making jokes people oh, yeah. being a bit strange we I mean, saw, well, that's the problem is that because, because you know satire is, is one of the targets here I mean we yeah. saw the Godfrey Elfwick account which is an amazing Twitter satire account completely permanently banned <laughs> for, for essentially making jokes and, and commenting and I, and I think it, it has to be I mean the suspicion has to be that that was ideologically motivated yeah. because he, the targets weren't the, the sort of the, they were the woke sort of people um, I think, I think and, and then recently only a couple of weeks ago we saw uh, the Saturday Night Live uh, comic Nimesh Patel was um, kicked off the stage at a university event where they actually cut the mic and he's a very woke comic and he was making very woke jokes but they because he because he referred to race and sexuality that was enough for this kind of uh, literal minded uh, modern uh, person who doesn't understand any kind of nuance so they cut it off and the problem with that is he then wrote an article saying well we mustn't over exaggerate the problem here you know it was only a few students at the event but what he's forgetting is everyone cheered everyone mm. in that room applauded uh, this open censorship of someone who himself is woke i mean you talk about the left sort of eating themselves this this woke movement will eat itself mm. and then and i worry actually just on a personal level about comedy being the target and comedy being the battleground because i feel that the comedy establishment are really pushing for us to go in this woke direction i mean nika burns head of the fosters comedy awards opened the Edinburgh Fringe last year with a speech about how she's looking forward to this new woke movement where young comics, <laughs> and this is what she said, young comics will be setting the parameters of what is acceptable. That's what she said. And she said she compared this to the, the alternative comedy movement in the 80s. And she sees this as where, where comedy is going. Well, I, I bloody well hope not. And I, I think there's now going to be opening up these battle lines in, in, in the comedy world. And it's, and it's all related to this free speech issue. Isn't that weird that it should that it should be even connected. I want to I want us to talk very briefly about one specific joke and this was the joke by Boris Johnson in his column where he compared um Muslim women who wear the burqa to letterboxes. Now, this was treated as if it was some kind of, you know, he'd incited some kind of pogrom against Muslims. What people forget in that column is that he was making the correct point and the the only right point you can make about the niqab no one in Europe actually wears the burqa, but the niqab 
which is that women should not be prevented from wearing it by the state. I completely agree with him. I think it would be outrageous if women were prevented from wearing it, primarily because women who believe they can't go out in public without the niqab would stop going out in public. So their lives would be made incredibly worse than they already might be. So he made the right point that there should be no um, state intervention into these women's lives. Actually, he demonstrated a very important principle of tolerance. And one of the important principles of tolerance is that you tolerate even things that you don't like. That's really what tolerance means. Tolerance means that even stuff that winds you up or irritates you or you think is alien and strange, and I think all of those things about the niqab, I do feel that it's wrong for women to wear the niqab. I do think it's antisocial. I do think it alienates them from me if I can't see their face. I, I would like to see them and engage with them. So I, I think all of that about the niqab. But the nature of tolerance and, and a free society is that you tolerate things that you don't like. His column actually captured that very well. And the blowback was a really good indicator of how illiberal our society has become, where even if you are defending a woman's freedom, the very fact that you raise even a joke or a criticism of how she chooses to live is seen as completely unacceptable. Well, also the right to ridicule, surely. I mean, that, that that's what the column suggested, that we need to be able to mock the things that we find inherently ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't understand why comedians, not I know he's not a comedian, well, he may as well be, but <laughs> why, why they keep apologising when they're pressured to apologise. If, if anything, moving forward next year, what I'd love to see is for comedians in particular to stop Yes. apologizing when they make a joke even if the joke falls flat and doesn't work because guess what that's what happens when you're trying new material out sometimes it doesn't work so let's just not apologize anymore unless you know you do something really bad but like in terms of misplaced jokes no I'm, I, I don't think no the apologies empower those people so much they it, it blows them up out of all proportion no apologies should ever and be it's made. never enough it's is it never enough So 2018 was the year the Conservative Party proposed the Gender Recognition Act, a bill which would allow people to have their self-declared gender legally recognised. So Ella, is this the year identity politics went fully mainstream? Uh, yeah, I think you have to remember it was the Conservative Party who proposed this. This has not been a groundswell kind of movement. There has been no public demand for this. This has been the most, the, the traditionally most liberal uh, party in British politics has called for this quite radical change in relation to our relationship with gender. So we had the consultation uh, in October, which asked people to give sort of testimonies about what they thought should change in relation to the Gender Recognition Act. And this isn't just some kind of small thing. This isn't just mm. some kind of small squabble. What it would actually mean if the Gender Recognition Act was changed and what's being proposed is that no longer would you have to prove to society uh, that you, would make a se you had made a serious decision about your gender, that you were wanting to live as a certain, you know, as a man or a woman in society, wanted to be part of society, but actually that just simply being a self-ID stating, you know, reading out a sentence, I am a woman, I am a man, would be enough. I think the really interesting thing about this is how it has revealed the uh, cracks within the feminist movement. There's been a generational divide in relation to uh, feminist radicals of an older generation argue that this change to the GRA would basically mean that men who want to abuse women are taking over completely, that the idea of womanhood itself has been wiped out, that women's oppression is being wiped out. On the other hand, you have ostensibly blokes in wigs saying that they now have equal claim to what it means to be a woman and <laughs> you know, people like me find themselves in this very interesting position in which you sort of 
want to say go to hell to both sides but uh it shows how feminism which arguably is the original identity politics mm. has this year really uh borne out the kind of the things that it said uh, in the past that mm. intersectionalism uh that kind of relativist attitude relativist attitude to gender and to women's experience all of this has now produced the bizarre situation in which men are saying that they're that they are women uh, and i find it hard to have sympathy for either side well, i think for me what the trans debate has really revealed is the incoherence at the heart of the woke movement because the, uh, the, the same people who will say that uh, gender is an entire social construct and has no basis in biology will also say that trans people are born with the wrong brain, either a male yeah, or female yeah. brain. You know, they'll say that gender is not important at all. And, and yet it's the most important aspect yeah. of self-identity. It's completely incoherent nonsense. And I think people should be able to do whatever they want with their own bodies, with their mm. own identification, call, what, call themselves by whatever names, whatever pronouns, whatever they want to do. That's up to them. And I would support <coughs> anyone's right to do so. And I would support their right to ask people politely to do the same. What worries me is that those who do not, for whatever reason wish to conform mm. to those speech codes that they are now being punished they're being uh, they're being uh, fired they're being disciplined at work um and you know we're not just talking about all the the the, the reams of invented pronouns the neo pronouns that have come out which are impossible to get a hang of, ha- a hold of anyway because there's millions of them mm. um but actually just people who who misgender or dead name i mean twitter has recently in november actually put on a um, a ban on dead naming or misgendering uh, graham linehan got caught out and well this actually got a, a visit from the police i believe or couldn't have happened um, to a nicer guy <laughs> But but yeah, <laughs> let's not go down that that road. Uh, but that the, the the implications for free speech worry me. I mean, the equivalent would be. I mean, if if I were to, I'm not. But if I were to get married uh, and a Christian person refused to call my partner my husband, if I were to then insist that that person be prosecuted, that mm. would be morally wrong. I would politely say to that person, I think you're wrong, and this is why. And can we discuss it? And this is, and and that's the way to deal with that. But criminalizing someone because they don't want to abide by your speech codes is a real problem irrespective of what the issue is. That's the difference though as well, because it's one thing to say that there should be this, there's this very small section of the population who believe that they are something that the vast majority of people probably wouldn't recognise. They should have the freedom to express that. And, you know, within the codes of, you know, polite society, people would generally be cool with that. Certain accommodations would be made. But the reverse is happening. This is being enforced on us on some level. And the fact that the Tory party is um, spearheading it just shows you how much that's become the consensus it's almost become a sort of religious test of various politicians particularly if they're kind of women in equalities you know either in government or in shadow position they will be asked a question at some point and penny morden for instance the current women equalities minister you know are trans women women they have to say yes that's almost like a test Mm. for whether or not you're allowed to take that role in public life you know i mean that's a slightly silly story but this um week it came out the brighton hove council were going to approve guidelines to teach school children that um People of all genders have periods, for instance, which is just fundamentally not Untrue. true on the basis of the, the majority position. And the trans issue, more than anything else, again, agreeing totally with what everyone said about saying, of course, people should have the freedom to do this and they should have a certain level of, you know, we should people should be free to live their own lives. You have what is, frankly, a minority opinion, very small layer of the population who actually believe, for instance, that trans women are women, who effectively enforce what is true for everyone else, Um and if you um, if you actually don't conform to that, then the consequences are quite real. We're not just talking about people getting sacked. We're not just talking about people getting told off. We're talking about, you know, feminist campaigners putting stickers around in Liverpool saying women do not have penises and being investigated by the police for doing but so. You know, That's where we've got to. My issue, is with the, my issue is with, is with precisely that phrase, trans women are women, because... Um, I'm more than happy to refer to trans women as trans women. I'm more, you know, 
Catelyn Jenner. I will call her Catelyn Jenner. I will refer to her as she. Of course, don't care. Yeah. It's it's polite thing to do, rude not to, and yeah, and it's rude not to. That's absolutely fine, and I would do that for all trans women. But then, what's happened recently is this kind of almost cult like mantra: trans women are women. Trans women are women. Tra- and they literally repeat it like Harry Krishna's. It's really weird. It's not only that you need to be polite, but you need to bow down now to this orthodoxy and this orthodoxy of gender fluidity, this orthodoxy of relativism, this orthodoxy that um, of self-definition taken to its extremes and also that society must count out to that self-definition. So it, that's, I think, what's, bris- what's rubbing people up the wrong way because trans people have existed for a long time, mm. particularly, you know, a long time, but particularly from the 1960s onwards. And people generally did not have that much of a problem I think the problem emerged when there was this attempt to legislate for the idea that the trans women are actually women and therefore they should share the same spaces as women and the same rights as women and everything else. That's where it became a problem. So they overplayed their card and the blowback, I think, is 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 um, deserved but also is potentially quite fruitful. I agree with Ella that I'm kind of a uh, plague on both their houses but I do think that the feministic blowback against trans extremism has an element of positivity in it because it's it's women saying stop telling lies and there's something in that I think which is quite positive yeah no there was two events that happened this year that I thought made me more than I never usually say anything like speaking as a woman or I'm offended because I'm a woman but there were two events this year the first one was that Channel 4 ran a documentary by uh, narrated and directed by the trans activist Monroe Bergdorf which was titled what makes a woman and it was entirely about her process going through plastic surgery of getting bigger boobs and a smaller chin and that's something that women uh, in terms of women being defined by their appearance have been arguing against for decades I mean that's a sexist idea that what defines a woman is her appearance and the second one although small and silly and laughed at on social media was the welcome trust using WIMXN instead of women (laughs) in a post and it It's funny, but also you have to say, what is so disgusting Mm. and terrible and wrong about the word women? You know, and as a woman, here I go, I'm going to say it. It does make you think, uh, you know, I've been forced to ask the question, what does it mean to be a woman? What what values do I have as womanhood? Because it's certainly not being oppressed by men and it's certainly not wearing a nice dress and getting a boob job. And so, you know, in terms of what this year has played out in relation to what it means for women with you know f- feminist women of an older generation being blocked and punched by activists in relation to Linda Bellos and Heather Brunskill Evans but also just the kind of idea that our opinions are silenced you know I'm constantly told that as a cis woman I w- can not engage in this uh discussion I'm not a cis woman I'm a woman no <laughs> absolutely well, that's what happened with Alison Moyer. Alison Moyer said on Twitter, I'm not a cis woman, I'm just a woman. She got so much flack, she eventually had to apologise. She had to apologise for calling herself a woman. So there is there is unquestionably a misogynistic streak in trans activism because it treats womanhood as such a flimsy thing that anyone can just put it on with a click of their fingers. I also think there's an element of homophobia in trans activism because I, uh, if you look at you know one of the countries with the most trans operations is Iran. Why does Iran turn men into women? Because it loads homosexuals so much. I do think there's an element, an element of that as well in Western trans activism, where you think, "Oh my God, this this 11 year old boy is wearing pink leg warmers and listening to Lady Gaga. He let's turn him into a woman." You know what happened to the old phrase "gay is okay" or "it's good to be gay." So I think there is this. 
I think it really does point to, as Andrew was saying, the kind of the woke eating themselves or the identity politics just reaching its logical conclusion, in fact, which is where it ends up attacking not the traditional values of society, which is how it presents itself, but actually attaching, attacking the rights of minority groups. Um, uh, gay rights activists, um, women, obviously not a minority, uh, but those people who've struggled for their rights over the past 30 or 40 years are actually now being undermined by the uh, this expansion of identity politics into realms which are just actually quite crazy. I wanted us to sort of go from, we were talking a little bit about women, but I want to talk about a specific group of women, uh, namely white women, who if you read the New York Times or the Washington Post, They've been these these white women have been uh, letting the side down lately, uh, especially in um, election year, because they're not they're failing to vote with their vaginas against um, against Trump. I don't know if anyone wants to jump in. On that. I, I just I just I just want to quote my favorite thing just to speak over you for a second. Just, uh, which was, there was this article in Vox which says something: if you're in America and you're not voting like a black woman, you're doing something wrong. And I just thought, have we really gotten to that point with this identitarianism, this idea that you're all defined? black women vote the same way? Of course Apparently they do. So. Yeah. No, well, Vogue, perhaps the whitest magazine in the world, <laughs> ran an article that said, "Will white women voters ever be what we want them to be?" I mean, it's explicit. This was in relation. To- to the fact that, you know, 53% of white women supposedly voted for Trump and, and that was reflected again at the midterms. And you had this kind of hand-wringing among mainly white female liberals, right? It, it wasn't, this wasn't black women or Latina women coming out and saying this, although there was a few. Generally, it was from the kind of white uh, media elite that was sort of flaying itself in relation to, you know, apologizing for the, you know, the evil sisters who continue to prop up the Trump government. It's white self-flagellation is actually the worst thing in identity politics because you have all these white people writing articles saying, dear white people, or things that white people have to stop doing, or why it's terrible to be a white person. And the reason that really infuriates me is because... It presents itself as self-hatred. You know, I'm white. I hate myself. Why do I have to be white? But actually, they're just showing off. They're actually saying, um, I'm switched on. I'm aware. I'm conscious. I'm, I'm racially conscious. I'm socially conscious. I'm a good white person. Unlike, you know, those other <laughs> white people who are racist and stupid and don't know anything about history. So there's a real element of white pride mixed in with this kind of sense of white shame. I, I saw a, an article on Vice recently which talked about how you can get a vacation away from white people. <laughs> and people, people were talking about what a wonderful thing this is. And I, I just really hate this collectivizing idea of humanity and, and, and that, you know... I think there's something really empowering about going back to the idea that everyone's an individual and we've all got our own ideas. And whenever whenever I see this thing, I mean, this year alone, there have been so many articles about the evils of white women. And of course, you know, for a while there, gay men were quite high up in the intersectional grievance hierarchy. Then they went down because they're part of the patriarchy. Uh, you know, uh, e- even though they're more likely to be physically attacked than any other group. It doesn't matter. They're, they're sort of down there now. And and these things just keep shifting. It's difficult to keep up. And white women are now, are now Satan at the moment, but that's probably going to be replaced by someone next year. I don't know, lesbian Filipinos or whatever. I don't know what it'll be. Like, you don't know where they're going to go. They're just going to attack anyone at some point. And it really worries me. I think we have to go back to individuality and stop patronizing, patronizing minorities and having a go at Kanye because he suddenly supports Trump because black well, men aren't black men aren't supposed to support Trump. He can support who he who he likes, right? You know, I think it, it really bothers me. And this thing about white women in America voting for Trump. I mean, I'm sorry. I always go on about it, but I hated that article in The Guardian by Suzanne Moore saying that they were all internalized misogynists, yeah. right? It's not possible that women around the world disagree with Suzanne Moore. 
her narcissism won't allow that to be possible. It must be that they all hate themselves. That fra- it's like that phrase, internalised misogynist. It's like, it's just calling someone a dumb bimbo. That's basically all yeah. it is. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. And that's what's so funny about identity politics is it just rehabilitates or gives people an opportunity to give vent to their hatred of certain yeah. groups that they claim <laughs> to love so much. But just quickly on the point about this being a kind of bourgeois movement or elite movement, one thing that I thought was really interesting this year wrapped up around all the royal wedding stuff and about Meghan Markle, the first mixed race person to enter the top tier of the royal family and all this excitement about it is that it really flushed out how unradical the kind of identitarian movement is on a kind of just on a kind of individual level because you know you would find yourself talking to people who otherwise would be avowed republicans who were suddenly saying how excited they were (laughs) about this and feeling very conflicted about it but also the extent to which it just shows that this kind of diversity politics or however it likes to think of itself defines itself against the mass they're all stupid they're all really racist when neither of those things are true um, and therefore, it likes these symbols. It likes a Meghan Markle. It likes a Beyonce or any of these other weird pop cultural figures they attach themselves to because it assumes that everyone is idiotic and needs to be led by the nose. And it was just fascinating how, I guess it was like the day after the engagement or something, front page of The Guardian, nominally a Republican newspaper, had a comment piece saying, um, this is a wonderful day. And from no point in the future can anyone say that being black and British are incompatible basically conceding the point that the royal family represent what it is to be <laughs> british so that's a, it's a, that's one example but at least it, i think it demonstrates how bourgeois how elite and how you know completely divorced from the feelings of ordinary people but especially but including in that ordinary people from minority communities who do not feel compelled to be this bizarre and doctrinaire about all these different it, things. It, it, absolutely you know one of the things that frustrates me most as as editor of Spiked, is when people blow back against us because we criticize identity politics a lot and they say, well, you're being sexist or you're being homophobic or you're being racist. It's the opposite of all of that. And I think the example of um, the internalized misogyny is a really good example because actually that rehabilitates the Victorian idea that women don't know their own mind. There's an incredibly reactionary element to all of this. The idea that we should judge people by their racial makeup, the idea that we should see women as being more fragile or or susceptible to influence than men um all that stuff i think is an incredibly worrying backward step so uh, the great i think one of the great progressive rallying cries today ought to be against identity politics and for humanism and individualism and the fact that people are self-governing or you know potentially self-governing and uh, should be judged on that basis and that basis alone And that's it for the Spike podcast this week. Thank you so much for all your support, all your ratings, reviews and donations over the year, because that is exactly what makes the Spike podcast possible. The Spike podcast will be back in the new year, but we have plenty of exciting things we can't wait for you to hear in the meantime. On Christmas Eve, we have a special festive edition of Last Orders, Spike's podcast on all things Nanny State. And next weekend, we have the Brendan O'Neill show, where Brendan will be joined by a former world leader. So those are absolutely not to be missed. Make sure you subscribe to Last Orders and The Brendan O'Neill Show so you never miss an episode of either. Thanks again from everyone here at Spiked and Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.